This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Leanne Howell and Kristen Squint, authors of Conversation with Leanne Howell. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you so much for having us, Deidre. Thank you for being on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. I'd like to start the interview with the interview that you had in New York with Kristen. Tell us about that interview. (laughs) You want me to start off, Leanne? Yes, I do. Okay. So um, this was such a wonderful opportunity. Um, I was already working on this book, Conversations with Leanne Howe, and Leanne was aware of this. And uh, the press was interested in me doing a new interview with her um, that was a more recent interview than some of the other ones that we had done to, be, to include in the book. And so we were actually planning for me to go down to Athens, Georgia and interview her. And then she came up with the absolutely brilliant idea of combining the interview with a trip to New York because her play, Savage Conversations, was being... Um, performed by a group in New York. Leanne's going to have to help me with some of the details. Um, and so they were reading the play. And so we were going to go to the event and hear the play and then do the interview the next day. So um, that's how that came about. Leanne, you can add more details here. Uh, well, you know, the, um, the group were, uh, I didn't know them and I uh, didn't know the theater and um, the director I had met once before. So um, we, we went and had this great time. And as I recall, the three of us, uh, Kirsten, myself, and the director, uh, John. Um, Was it Paul Austin? Yes, Paul Austin, excuse me. Uh, all went to dinner afterwards, and it was a really I I hadn't seen this done uh, on, on stage in um, um, before I don't think, and so it was it was other than by students, and so it was a really uh, exciting time, and I had a couple of uh, maybe one friend who came who lives in New York, he's a writer, and so we really enjoyed the whole the whole process of it. It was kind of exciting. Um, and, and it went well. The, the thing that was so interesting to me is that at last uh, he had found um, an older actress in New York to play the role of, of uh, Mary Todd Lincoln and uh, an African-American to play against her um, which was exactly the way I had always hoped for the production to, to go forward. So for me, it was really, it was really a lot of fun and it was the culmination of many years work on that project. And so, and of which Kirsten, uh, I believe interviewed me more at the beginning uh, of the project when I was working on it. And Kirsten has a better memory about that than I do. And um, so it, so it, it was, it was, it was wonderful all the way around. (laughs) It was. And actually I was just, I was, just pulled that interview up in the book so I could um, say the name of the theater where we were. It was the Ensemble Studio Theater at um, 549 West 52nd Street. And it was so exciting, I think, to sit there with Leanne and see her, see her words come to life on the stage. That was such an exciting moment, especially for me as a scholar who's written about her work a lot. Um And then the other thing, and so, yes, and then the next morning we had a very intense conversation over coffee, you know, as we're both getting ready to board our flights. It was a very short trip. We, 
it was supposed to be longer, but my flight was delayed and all kinds of stuff. But, um, but back to the, um, the interesting thing about her writing Savage Conversations was, I guess it was, Deidre and I talked about this just a little bit before you got on the call, Leanne. I, the first time I interviewed Leanne was in 2008. Um, and that was the interview that was published in Mellis, um, uh, in 2010. And then we did another interview in, I think, 2013. And then that came out in my book, my first book on Leanne's work, uh, Leanne Howe at the Intersections of Southern and Native American Literature that came out in 2018. So I was over all those years, really trying to keep track of everything she was doing. Cause I wanted to put it all in that first book. And I will tell you, I remember when you first told me about Savage Conversations, because it was not on my radar. And I was down in Athens, Georgia for something. I don't know what, it may have been a conference or something. And we were having dinner and you said, and I've told you about this play I'm writing about Mary Todd Lincoln and this, um, this savage Indian man that she, she calls savage Indian who is, you know, torturing her every night. And I remember my jaw just dropped and I said, I, I don't know anything about this. So I was just stunned because you'd been working on this and researching on this for a number of years. And it really, uh, I wasn't aware of it. And it seemed so different from so much of what you'd done in the past. And it was really <laughs> powerful, really powerful to see it performed. Well, it, it was a, it, it's purely happenstance. I came across her um, again at, in, a, in a kind of, a, it was, I accidentally stumbled on her while I was at the University of Illinois, and I was shocked that she blamed her. She in the in her quote unquote insanity trial, she blamed an American Indian for her insanity, and that flew all over me. I thought, how dare you? You never even met a native, and I did as much as I could to see if she had come across an American Indian. Uh, in Kentucky or um, when she was growing up, I couldn't find any evidence of that. So this blaming American Indians who her husband had hanged uh, at Mankato, um, it just seemed, it just seemed a bridge too far not to engage with her and try to find out and find out what on earth led her to believe that uh, American Indians, specifically one, was torturing her at night after all she'd been through uh, with Lincoln and to put that insanity on us. And, And I do say us, I'm you know, I'm Choctaw, an American Indian, and it just, it, it infuriated me. And um, so I, yeah, I know we're supposed to sympathize with our characters. I had a really hard time doing that because she was just mean as a snake and, and, and not, not very nice to Lincoln either. Uh, all the years they're married, she blamed him for 57 other things. And, um, you know, he realized that she was the one who uh, stole his papers from his, his desk and sold them to a Confederate spy. And when he found out he had, he had Pinkertons uh, out searching for the person who'd taken his papers and when, when he realized that it was her, and that she had profited from that, uh, he called off the investigation and realized he had to be much more careful and around her uh, because she was nuts. So there's a lot of sympathy to go around for him, yet he ended up hanging the, 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 uh, the Dakotas in uh, Christmas. And I, so both of them have their own. Um, their own guilt when it comes to America and their own, they, they both carry their own guilt and they both um, were in my opinion, unseemly characters, even though everybody reveres Lincoln. Uh, I'm not one of those. 
I began there because I think that tells us who Leanne Howe is. And can you talk to the audience about all the hats that you wear in describing who you are? <laughs> well, I leave that kind of thing usually to people like Kirsten I and other people who, who know me. You know, I'm a, I'm a writer. I've been a writer for a long time. I began early on working. Actually, I started working on theater um, uh, decades ago. And uh, then I, I wrote fiction, short fiction. You know, I'm a writer. Uh, by and large, I just happened to write in uh, several genres, including theater and poetry and savage conversations, I think of as which is about um, Mary Todd Lincoln and this um, Indian ghost that she says haunted her. You know, that's in a poetic frame. It's more of a poetic frame, although uh, my editor at the time at Coffeehouse Press said, no, we are marketing this as a, as a, a, a work of fiction. And it's, it, it has it has poetry elements, and so um, I'm I, I'm grateful when scholars like Kirsten pay attention to my work, and um, you know I'm continuing to produce, and I have uh, a new book I'm working on uh, that's set in 1918. So you know um, I'm not a jack of all traits, although I would like to be. <laughs> You know, and I'm, I'm a scholar and I teach at the University of Georgia. <laughs> well, Deidre, can I can I add some stuff to that? I know the question was directed to Leanne. <laughs> so so this is from the, the scholar sort of <laughs> looking on and, and, and observing uh, Leanne as the writer. She's really interesting to me because, um, you know, back in the 80s, she referenced writing some, she did some work writing plays um, with, uh, Roxy Gordon, uh, they co-authored a couple of plays together and they were a big part of the Dallas-Fort Worth art scene um, back then. Um, But she's interesting to me because like a lot of writers in the past, she was starting out, you know, writing for newspapers, that kind of thing. But that kind of route to become a writer has really changed. And I think she's gone a way that many folks who do write have gone, which is, you know, academia made sense. And so, um, you know, she's been teaching for a long time. And I think, that teaching has evolved into a great mentorship. And that's one of the things I think about when I think about her impact. She certainly her writing has made an impact, but she's also mentored many um, native scholars uh, over the years, working at the University of Illinois, University of Georgia and other places. Um, And she's also, you know, she is a scholar, but she's, she's the kind of scholar that's kind of, coming up with really interesting and creative ideas like her concept of tribalography that's influenced the field of American Indian studies. And it's about the way that Native people tell stories. And so, um, yes, you know, I, I think of her first and foremost as a writer, but I also see her in this, you know, very holistic way, mentoring people. And she's a part of um, so many different communities. And it's just been such an honor to know her and to work with her. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, thank you for saying all those nice things. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've had a lot of fun over the years, too. I did tell Deidre we were in New Orleans recently as well. <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't tell her everything. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I mean, you know, that was that was wonderful. And getting to travel and, you know, it's it from here to there. And um, so we were recently in Mexico uh, in May for uh, the work that Joshua Nelson at the University of Oklahoma and I and James Fortier had done on um, on Sequoia and um, and it turns out that we when I got back home from Mexico other than getting an ear infection we found out that we had won a tele award this year which we uh, are very excited about, and I'll put it on my Facebook page, but for the work that we did uh, on Sequoia and the syllabary that he created. So 
for me, these journeys are about discovering people that I didn't know, that I had no idea their accomplishments historically or currently. And I think that 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 life, that life as a, as a, as a writer has led me, you know, all over the place. And I'm very, very, very fortunate. But, but I also have to say, I worked very hard, um, to get there. And so, um, I hope to have elements in this new book, uh, uh, of my life in Jordan, uh, when I was a Fulbright scholar. So, even though I'm telling the story of 1918 and my grandmother's life and the kind of things she went through, um, part of that is wrapped, part of my own narrative, my own memoir of her, but also of living in Jordan during uh, the Arab Spring. Uh, and that kind of that kind of energy that it requires to live through certain big events. I, I also know that my grandmother lived through this horrific event of the flu, the pandemic, and how that, that influenced her life and the, rest of, uh, and the rest of my family. So pulling these things together, both as a scholar and as a, as a writer, what are the threads that bind us? And I think that's what I've always appreciated about uh, Kirsten's work is she's looking at threads of how we uh, are bound together in this place. And both of us being, you know, she's a, she's a clear Southerner. I'm from Oklahoma. We think of ourselves as Southerners, but we're not. <laughs> And uh, certainly Southern Indians, Southeastern Indians. But uh, all of those things make up who we are and what we're interested in uh, telling, the stories that we're telling. Now, you start by saying something about Will Rogers. You were comparing yourself to Will Rogers. Tell us about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. Um, You know, he... He got very interested early on. He was a cowboy, and he comes from Oklahoma. And he was, I think, like myself, always pulling at different narratives, certainly from his Cherokee heritage, certainly working with um, um, the, the early flight, Wiley Post, um, and, and also vaudeville. And I started out on the stage um, well over 30 years ago, longer than that, if I sit back and think about it. I just said, oh, I'll do that. And we did it. And so Roxy and I just said, well, we should write a play. Okay, let's do it. We wrote two plays because we just, like Will Rogers, thought, well, let's do it. Let's gather our friends and let's do it. And after that, we did... Indian Radio Days, which is a radio show, and we went on to perform that all over um, Kingdom Come and on the radio. It was a radio show, so we had all these sounds, something that Will Rogers was interested in. And I, I, I thought, you know, without knowing it, he's kind of a mentor. And he was a joker, and I think of myself as a joker, maybe not so much anymore, but not a practical joker, but I like to, I like to have fun with the work that I do do. And it sort of all evolved out of that. And, um, and then I grew up right across the street when I lived in Bethany, Oklahoma from Wiley Post Airport, where the two of them, as everybody knows, died in Alaska, uh, in a plane crash, uh, which is, you know, heartbreaking, uh, for two individuals of their statue. Uh, on, on the other hand, um, I've heard the recording, or read the recording, excuse me, of Wiley Post's last um, report, and he said uh, over Barrow, and he gave the degrees and stuff, 
and signing off. No screaming, no yelling, because he knew they were going to crash. And he just gave the longitude and those degrees that pilots do. And they're both there, and they both knew it. And I thought, what brave individuals uh, going down with the ship, so to speak, in Barrow, Alaska. And why I tell that story is that's the kind of um, courage it takes to do that kind of work. And it also takes a lot of courage to decide, well, I can do that. I'm going to do that. And so I've, I've been fortunate to work with people who are just like that. So when we went up to Canada, I worked with Monique Mojica and um, as a playwright, we decided we are going to tell Sideshow Freaks and Circus Engines because both of our relatives, my great aunts, were in the circus. And uh, when the circus came to town um, in the 1920s, my aunt Yuda joined up at the circus and did that the rest of her life, traveled all over the country. So Monique had a relative in the circus in New York, and we ended up writing another play, A Sideshow Freaks and Circus Engines, uh, and we performed, the last time we performed that was in Canada in 2017, in Toronto, I should say, um, and I'd like to bring that and bring Monique to Georgia and perform the show here. Um, uh, that's that's one of my forward-thinking projects, but I haven't gotten. I you know it takes a, a bit to raise money and so forth and so on to do that. But those are the kind of projects that I think require <laughs> courage. Um, if you're going to go out on stage and be a circus performer, and um, we found a person, and we went oh we went to the clown school. It was the um, um, in 2016, and that don't hold me that, but but to learn to swallow fire and uh, be, become a circus performer, and I never did conquer this uh, swallowing fire, but I did lay on a bed of nails and learned how to do that, and for this show, and uh, but one of our um, um, co-directors learned how to swallow fire, and I. I was too big of a coward to put that burning thing that's soaked in kerosene, by the way, or a, a, a solution down my throat. No. Mm. <laughs> well, oh, there are limits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's an example coming back to your question of like how many, you know, what kind of hats she wears. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. I wanted to just follow up with the um, Will Rogers comment that, it was important for me to start the book with that particular quote uh, because I felt that in the previous work I'd done on Leanne, I hadn't um, really talked about her humor enough. And her work is very funny, even when she's taking on the absolute most serious subjects you can imagine. So I wanted to do that, but also because Leanne mentioned vaudeville and the final um, the final interview in this book, uh, the interview by Jen Shook genre sliding on stage with playwright Leanne Howe, I think is, you know, it's definitely the most comprehensive interview we have with her about her work as a playwright and performer. And so that was a way for me to also tie that in um, and really kind of focus on that in this book. Now, 14 interviews. How did you select the ones that you did for the book? Um, I, I, we put, I put every interview that I could in the book. And I, as far as I know, at that time, it was every interview that had been published or had come out in a, in a podcast version, except Leanne did an interview with um, Asif Manvi on Jon Stewart's The Daily Show back in, when was that, Leanne? Like 2008, maybe 2007? Oh Lord, yes. A long time ago. I didn't yeah. think about it. Yeah. And I can the- probably look it up, but yeah, the interview, and in fact, actually, it's probably here. I can probably look it up here real quick. But um, that interview, though it is with Leanne, it's about this horrible mascot they had at the University of Illinois. And I don't even know to what degree he still appears, but um, Chief Alinawek. And of course, there's a massive controversy there. And so Leanne was brought in as representative of the American Indian Studies Program. And 
I, you know, I thought really hard about whether or not I wanted to try to get permission to use that interview. And I don't even know if the daily show would have led us without charging us a lot of money or something for the transcript. But the interview was not really about Leanne. It was about this issue where she was called in as expert. But I do mention it in the introduction because it does show, um, you know, how satirical she can be and how willing she was to go on that show and deal with this really controversial and harmful mascot that the University of Illinois um, was not letting go of. Um, Now, one other interview that I found of interest was the LaRose Davis interview mm -hmm. and the talking about historical aspects of the Minko Kings and African-Americans and Native American connections. Talk to us about that. Well, uh, I can get us started, and then I know Leanne can tell you a lot more about that. Yeah, this was a really important interview that LaRose Davis did pretty early on. Um, One of the things I mentioned in the introduction is that, you know, there's a gap between my first interview with Leanne and the interview um, that Aunt Lute, a representative from Aunt Lute Books, her publisher, had done about a, like an eight-year gap. And then after that, lots and lots of interviews are, are kind of rolling out because she's very prolific and a lot of her work's being published. Um, but LaRose's is one of the early ones. And LaRose was particularly interested in the, um, the, uh, the way that Hampton University um, had uh, brought in Native students in the 19th century and the relationships between African-Americans and Native Americans. And they were having some kind of, um, oh, I'm going to let Leanne take over, but I believe Miko Kings had been used as their 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 book read or something like that. Yes, and it was that's the first, right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. it was the first book authored by a Native person that they had brought in for that. And that was exciting because, you know, uh, Hampton had baseball teams they had put forward um, uh, back in the day. And historically, it was really important. But the uh, interesting thing about Hampton is they won't let any non-family into their archives to read, you know, um, uh, early on back in the 1980s. Uh, a scholar had worked on those interview those uh, those archives, and they closed them. I don't know why. Um, they say they'd never let anybody in to see them, but he did. And um, I I was very lucky to go there and try to work um, at Hampton. But while I was in Mississippi, I'd also. Uh, at that time, I believe I was on a John Grisham fellowship and, and LaRose uh, wanted to interview me. And I was very grateful to the questions that she asked around race and, um, and how we, how we intersected African-Americans and Native Americans Um during this, it, it's really in, uh, throughout the era of segregation. There were uh, all African American uh, baseball teams and all Af- all American Indian baseball teams, and we weren't allowed uh, to play with other non well other white teams. I don't know how to say it, and they were certainly never going to recruit natives. And that was early on. Of course, that changes. And historically, it changes. And also, um, uh, they realized, of, of all things, what they were missing um, in that era. And I was very lucky uh, to be invited to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, Scholars invited me to come up uh, while while I was there in New York, and they were trying to get Miko King's a reading at the Baseball Hall of Fame, and which they shut the door because I'm very critical of the segregation that went on. And, you know, I'm really telling a story of these incredible baseball players those were based on real research at the time, and some of them uh, were real, who were playing. And um, so they would not let 
much to the chagrin of scholars that were there uh, uh, in New York. They wouldn't let me read there, and they wouldn't host, they wouldn't have anything to do with the book or any of the archival material. And that's the, the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, thank you very much. And I thought, well, you know, why should we be surprised? Um, and and I wasn't. And it was a, a very interesting time that, you know, we're going from uh, Mississippi, where the Choctaw Nation, or the Choctaws began, uh, to, to play out in New York, to play a, around the country, to play in Chicago, and still... Um, this would have been probably in 2008, 2007, and still um, the Baseball Hall of Fame would not host an American Indian to read about our experiences. Thank you very much. <laughs> wow. Now, being a Mississippian, I picked up on the Winston County, Mississippi part in your book. Oh, yeah. Being a writer of the Native South, describe that. Well, um, that's where the uh, the Mississippi Band of uh, Choctaw Indians is there. And so I spent time uh, on their reservation. And because I'm an Oklahoma Choctaw, I'm from uh, Oklahoma. And so we are, we have the same. Uh, the same language, only theirs is they consider uh, uh, more authentic than ours. Okay, um, and 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 they're at that time their their chief uh, was uh, Linda Lafar Lafarve with an RE at the end. Uh, anyway, she um, invited me down. I got to meet her and some of the council members at the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. And um, it, we, we, I really was grateful to her. Uh, we talked about some of the sites that we both, uh, both tribes um, uh, revere, including the Naniwaya and um you know, how our traditions have, some of them remain the same and others have uh, diverged. So it was a great experience being in Mississippi and I'm always grateful to, uh, to them for being very kind to me. And as I was working on, you know, a book on the um, Indian baseball players, Choctaw baseball players at the time, and so I, I really am grateful for all these all these amazing experiences come out of out of a writing career. Lots of amazing experiences. Now you talked about being the writer in Oklahoma and the connection to the Dust Bowl. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I think everybody who comes out of Oklahoma has a connection to the Dust Bowl. <laughs> now, we are located in uh, southeastern Oklahoma, so that area did not experience what the the Panhandle and the and northern Texas. I mean, that's a true true on Dust Bowl, and uh, but. My grandmother and my mother talked about, well, they all talked about it, about having to wear a, um, um, a bandana across your nose because the dust was so thick. Even in Ada, uh, my grandmother would say that the windowsills, you know, even with the windows shut, would fill up with sand and it was blowing across Oklahoma. I mean, it was, it was a tremendous event for Oklahoma and for especially for southeastern Oklahoma and I'm lucky to have met several writers who have uh, been writing about the western part of of Oklahoma and what they went through what they sacrificed and you know killing cattle killing deer it killed everything in its wake because it choked you to death so animals were migrating and uh i mean it's a huge huge story if we're not careful uh, we can 
cause that kind of event, that kind of um, environmental disaster um, again. And so we, you know, they did, they, at the time people came through and were helping, well, we have to, you know, build berms and we have to get tree lines planted to, to mitigate against another dust bowl. And knock on wood, we haven't had that. But um, in, in again, in, um, in at least in my lifetime, so that was a big, big event. And it's also why so many people left Oklahoma, like my great aunts, and joined the circus. You know, get away from it, find another uh, career. And um, uh, I think that if all of us begin to look at the strings that are there, the, the web of our history, our personal history, and map it on to landscape and our land, the history of our land, uh, you'll find all these stories in your own back, back, background. And so that's the kind of advice I give most of the people I work with. Now, begin to pull on those strings. Excellent. Now, in the podcast occult poetry radio you describe your connections with the mounds and this is a connection with environment from the the dust bowl so tell us about the mounds and the meanings there well we are people who our creation story is the choctaws and and choctawan uh, peoples begin our origin story uh, tunneling up through the mound and um, in our origin story and combing our long hairs and, you know, clipping our nails or our pinchers, whatever the animal or the insect that, you know, your particular tribe identifies with. Some people are crayfish people and other people are, you know, come up as, people and so there's all these different insect and animal creation stories which we know um, is really giving honor to all the animals around us anyway our story comes we come up through the mound and comb our long hair Choctaws were historically known by the French and the Spanish as having hair they never cut very very long hair and drying ourselves into red men and red women on the mound. And that mound that is still there, and there are other mounds that, that, that remnants remain because they tried to plow them all under. Uh, but the, the Mississippi mound that we identify with is Naniwaya. And at the base of that mound, uh, the other mound, excuse me, the base, the other, there's a big cave and that's the, uh, it has water in it still standing. And that's the, uh, that's the creation. We come up through that to become red men and red women. So most of us try to honor that. I know in the past, the Oklahoma Choctaws used to run tours for their elderly that would leave Durant and go to the Naniwaya so people could see it. My aunts and um, took took that tour um, to go see that. My mother's uh, aunts, which would be my great aunts, took that tour to go see it. And I was always grateful that the Choctaw Nation provided that so they could see as elders, you know, our creation mound. So, um, and, and are we, I've heard talk and it may be uh, a reality now that one of our councilmen built a new mound in Atoka. I believe that's, um, that's correct. And if you go to Oklahoma city today, you can see that the, the uh, tribes uh, collectively built a new mound outside of Oklahoma City on the Canadian River because mounds are so significant to southeastern uh, Indian people. So I encourage everybody to at least go to Oklahoma City and see the mound uh, there and go to the museum. And uh, it's uh, a, a, 
uh, a creation by Native people from Oklahoma. And we have, I think, still 69, 66 tribes in Oklahoma and are represented represented by this museum. So um, it's we were there for the opening and um, yeah, it was just it was a it was a magnificent event. Chad Allen, who's another researcher, is Chickasaw at the University of Washington. He and I wrote the introduction for that um, a book of the of the mounds in Oklahoma, and it um, it was um, a wonderful experience because. Uh, so many tribes participated in that, and um, so it was it was great. I believe it was 2019, 2020. So, yeah, so that, you know, somebody asked me, how do I keep connected to Oklahoma? Well, I have a home there, and my family, my grandchildren, everybody's there. So, of course, I go home um, and return to uh, my grandmother's house in Ada, which is now mine, and we've renovated it and so forth and so on. And, um, but that's that, you know, I can't imagine not doing that. And we've held some literary salons, and I hope to be able to do that again after the pandemic <laughs> and after all these things have happened. I hope to reconstitute the uh, salon Ada in the coming years. And Leanne's also been um, integral or I guess spearheaded um, the American Indian Returnings lecture series at the University of Georgia, where she's been bringing Southeastern Native scholars back to the Southeast um, to talk about their work. And that's been, you know, one of the reasons that I initially became interested in her work was seeing the way that she had characters moving back and forth from the Southeast to Oklahoma. And just, you know, for myself, having grown up in the South and, and not being aware of the, the federal federally recognized and state tribes in the South, and then going to the Southwest and, you know, teaching on the Navajo reservation and coming back to the Southeast and realizing, wait a minute, why are, why are indigenous people invisible in the South? Why is that? And I feel like a lot of the work that she's done in her position at the University of Georgia has been helping to make indigenous people in the South visible in the Southeast, whether it's returning or just illuminating, you know, what's what's happening here and now. Now, you talked about local Choctaw events and national tragedies. What's what's going on there? How can you make those connections? Well, that's that's coming out of an interview where I had asked Leanne about. Um, we were having this conversation about in Miko King's. Was it was it Miko King's the event that happened? Oh yes, right. There's the newspaper image. And it was when the San Francisco earthquake happened, but the characters are focused on an event that happened in the Choctaw community. But the newspaper was like blaring about the San Francisco earthquake. And so we'd had a conversation about kind of, I guess, what, whose story is being centered, whose history is being centered, because that's, I think, so much of what she's doing in her work. And um, I don't know if you want to pick up on that, Leanne, but that was the, the context of the question that I'd asked. Right. We were, but, but, but that is so emblematic of American Indian history, period. I think that the, the things that, that Kirsten tried to focus on were how, how and why in her book, The Conversations, it's one of the themes is invisibility. And I think uh, we just did a program in uh, New Orleans. When was that, Kirsten? Uh, March. I think it was March. March. And and people were still very, uh, I, I don't know if surprised, but the invisibility of Native people in New Orleans, of all places. Um, well, they have the Choctaw uh, crew that's there that are probably not, but New Orleans was a 
big center and so much of our history happened there. We were, we were talking about that. And I was trying to say in, in that discussion there that both of us were in New Orleans, so much of New Orleans history is predicated and helped by Choctaw people. We secured that site for Bienville and the, the, uh, his home, uh, trade goods, food. We brought food to his regiment so that they wouldn't starve to death. None of that story is told. And I tried to tell a bit of it, but it's, it's as if, you know, all the imprints that I could see that we, that we could talk about are there in New Orleans. It's invisible to them. They cannot see us. Um, New Orleans is a story uh, about the French and the uh, early on um, um, African Americans and 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 Amer- and later Americans, but there's no natives there. It's invisible. And so I've written about that quite a bit, but I think that's the story of America. Native people are invisible. Native accomplishments never happened. Um, our tribes, oh, it's just too bad you all died. Well, <laughs> well, we're not dead. Oh, uh, I, I've had people say that to my face, knowing I was Native. Oh, it's just too bad all your people died. <laughs> we're not dead. Um, but you couldn't tell it by Americans and American history. And I think that's purposeful. That's willful erasure. And you know, to swing back to that point you were making earlier about Mary Todd Lincoln, it's either invisibility or it's a very um, kind of vague villainous entity, right? Like this savage Indian that she's imagining or any vague Indian in a Western, you know, I mean, there's no specific tribe associated with these things. And it's, it's just right. Like the, um, it's the, the, the colonial, you know, the, the enemy of settler colonialism, Indian, very vague, very nonspecific. Um, so anyway, I, I do think that Leanne, she, she really works against all of those kinds of stereotypes in her work. She often does it in very funny ways. Um, in her book, um, Evidence of Red, a collection of poetry. She's got a very, you know, funny series of poems uh, featuring Savage Indian and Indian mascot, you know, taking these stereotypes and turning them upside down. In Shell Shakers, she's done this wonderful work of unveiling the Choctaw history in New Orleans. And that that was something that um, I think, you know, her panel, our panel really focused on, on Shell Shaker and their relationship to the Gulf South. Um, so I just, I think she keeps doing that in her work and I, and I think it's important. And, you know, I try to be hopeful. Um, my work is really for the last, like I said, it's been 14 years since that first interview, which is so hard to believe, but, uh, as, (laughs) yeah, as a scholar in, um, in Southern and, and Native American literary studies, you know, I keep, um, trying to, to demonstrate to my students and to those who might read my work, the presence of uh, Native people in the Southeast, and also, you know, things like what, what, what is the legacy of Indian removal? How did that impact the history of plantation slavery? Um, what does it mean that we've got two groups of Cherokees and two groups of Choctaws, one in Oklahoma, well, two more than that, but, you know, two, two federally recognized Cherokee tribes in Oklahoma and one in North Carolina. You've got federally recognized Oklahoma Choctaw and the Mississippi band and on and on. You can talk about this. You've got divided people that were forced through state sanctioned removal slash genocide, um, you know, literally taking their lands from them. Um, And we just, we have not dealt with that in any kind of way in the South. People don't, it's not something that's talked about regularly, you know, um, and even rarely in classrooms. So, you know, some folks say, don't let the trail of tears be the story that we talk about native people. And of course it can't be because native people are still here today, like Leanne was saying, but at the same time, if we don't reckon with that history in the Southeast, um, 
we're never going to understand how we got to where we are at this point. Now, I have a question. What message would you like to leave your readers with after they finish reading this book? <laughs> uh, Leanne, do you, do you want to start or do you want me to start? I think you should start. Okay. Um, it's, it's a hard question for me because I will say, I'll, I'll try to be concise. This was a huge labor of love for me. Um, I started thinking about the book when I was still writing uh, my monograph, Leanne Howe, at the intersections of Southern and Native American literature. Um, but that book came about because of my first interview with Leanne in 2008. And I learned so much from talking to her. And every time I would read an interview that she did with someone, I would learn so much. And part of it is she is just a fascinating conversationalist. There are some people, you know, that you talk to and you think, God, I learned so much. They're so interesting. They're funny. I can't believe those words just came out of her mouth. You know, you just really <laughs> enjoy it. And I always felt that way about talking to her, which is why I, I wound up interviewing her so many times. But I'd always read these interviews and be fascinated. And so uh, University Press of Mississippi had has a, uh, a series, the Literary Conversation series. And I, I started sort of secretly collecting interviews in a folder on my computer, thinking, well, maybe someday I'll pitch a book to them. And, and when I did, they were immediately interested, which I was so happy about because I really wanted a Mississippi Press to publish this book about Choctaw people, um, and about Leanne specifically, but also because it's the homelands of the Choctaws and they, they need to talk about that more. And so I guess kind of to cycle back, you know, to your question, what do I want people to get from this? I do want people to be more aware of Leanne Howe's work because I think it's brilliant and fascinating and all kinds of good things. But I also think there are some very smart people um, who've asked her some very interesting and important questions. And I'd like for those interviews to be read. Um, one, I'm just going <laughs> to, I'm going to, I'm going to pitch or, or give a little plug for two of the interviews. One, I already mentioned Jen Shook's final interview about, um, uh, about Leanne's theater days, which is just asks so many good questions and is so well-researched. And the other one is by Rig Kerwin, um, who's an Irish scholar, uh, teaches at Goldsmiths in London. And, um, he knows her work very well. And they collaborated on a book recently, called Famine Pots, which is about the Choctaw Irish gift exchange, which Leanne writes about in um, Shellshaker. And that essentially comes down to that, if you don't know about it, um, basically the Choctaws, after they were removed from their homelands in Mississippi, um, just a couple of years after that, gave a financial gift to the Irish who were starving in the potato famine. And that generosity has inspired so much uh, in terms of a relationship between the Choctaw people and the Irish people, so much that Leanne and Poe Rig wrote this book. And I wanted to say that they've recently won an award by um, a European group for famine pots. I think it's a food studies group. So I wanted to mention that, but there are just so many great interviews in this book. And I, I hope people can see the complexity of Leanne's work and also kind of get a sense of the you know, that the funny and intellectual and um, really just interesting person and writer that she is. Oh, well, well, thank you for all of that. I would say thank you, Kirsten, because the um, I, uh, I don't think very, I don't think much about my, my work in doing these things. What I mean is I'm concentrating concentrating on in all my projects on trying to get something right so if it you know we just put it out there right as writers we're just putting things out and if it if it influences people that's the the that's the gravy and um so i've always been grateful to her for for articulating so many things that um kind of go past me because I'm trying to trying to make sure that I have the details, the writing, all those kinds of things are at work for me. And so I, I, I continue to, I, I, what's the, what's the message of the work is that Choctaws were here 
always and always will be. And that's that's my that's what I began writing for. I wanted people to know our story. And if it's personal or if it's uh, global, um, talking about the, the gift exchange that we gave, uh, or if it's, you know, on the level of uh, people that make relationships with people who are different from themselves, that is the lesson of of humanity, but that's also something that's very important to to my tribe and my community, and I take that seriously. And so it's been a wonderful experience to work with Kirsten um, over these years. I didn't realize it had been that long, and I was like <laughs> a day at the beach for her. <laughs> it's like, Why the hell do you want to write a story about me? Just thinking, oh my God, I can't, I can't imagine why. And uh, but she stuck with it, and, <laughs> and we become great friends. And I take that very seriously, and into my heart for, um, for her and her family. And that, those are the things that are important. Thank you so much for being on the show. I've gotten so much from your book, and. I just want to know what are the next projects that both of you will be working on? <laughs> I'll go first. Cause I think Leanne has a, a longer list than I do. <laughs> yeah, I have been um, over the last couple of years, I've, I've had a couple of things come out a little, um, some more things about Leanne's work, shorter pieces and, and chapters, but um I'm working, I'm hoping it's a book, but I've, I've written some things about, um, about, uh, water as a site of trauma for, uh, mostly for native people in the Southeast, but also for, for other groups. And some of that has to do with climate change. And some of that has to do with, um, uh, Indian removal, other kinds of traumatic hurricanes, other kinds of traumatic events. So that's, that's the scholarly work that I've been, I've been trying to do. And I always keep my, my eye on what Leanne's doing. Cause I, I it's funny. I will say this when I, when I finished my first book about her, we were at the Faulkner conference in Mississippi and I, I just turned in the manuscript and I was sad and I told her I was feeling sad about it. And she said, you know, we're still going to have a relationship after this book. <laughs> so I said, oh, good. I didn't know this other book was coming yet, you know. Um, so, yeah, I keep my eye on her work because I just I'm, I'm endlessly inspired by it. So, so I don't know. I've got a few little things happening. But um, anyway, that's that's what's going on for me. Uh, I'm finishing a project. I wrote a, a, a play called The Keening with uh, Calm Summers and he's been down here and we've, we finished it and we had a reading this last year in New York at the Irish Cultural Center in New York City, um, uh, which is a, a brand new facility and they are going to host, I think, um, they've hosted one reading and Calm is C-O-L-M, and the last name is Summers. He directed, and it's about the uh, Choctaw-Irish situation uh, relationship, and it's about a Choctaw grandmother and her granddaughter in New York, living in New York City with an Irish cop that's trying to evict them. And uh, it's set in the apartment, and I think it's, it's wonderful. And we go back to Mississippi and we, um, you know, some of the scenes are there that the grandmother tells and we did the reading it made. And this is always my standard. It made everybody cry. <laughs> so I'm hoping that that gets off the ground. I have a meeting with him next week and that we're able to move forward with that. Um, that sounds great, Leanne. It's it's a, it's a very exciting. It's about again uh, our relationship over these hundred and seventy eighty years, uh, and then um, I'm doing another. We 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 proposing another book with Porg Kerwin, which is 
a little bit different on the aftermath of famine for both of our communities. And that's something, and we're focusing on children, children's stories from the 1847 famine and then the removal. We're focusing on those children's stories with Choctaws. So I'm very much looking forward to that. And I'm trying to finish my, um, my book, 1918, um, that's set in uh, Stonewall, Oklahoma. It's my grandmother's story uh, of her husband, uh, who also was Irish and German descent. He was a white man that she married in 1916, and he dies of the flu. And she had the flu, the uh, uh, that pandemic that went through the country in 1918. And I'm telling the story of her life up through the uh, 1930. So, uh, which was, she, she was um, uh, very heroic, but she survives. Um, he dies next to her in the bed. And, uh, uh, and that epitomizing event really influenced her. And I want to get her story finished this summer. Well, we are looking forward to all of those great projects. And thank you again. Thank you, Deidre. This was wonderful. Thank you, Deidre.